Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We're going through 521 this morning as we look at uh, justification by faith. It's page 941 in the Bible in the chairs in front of you. Last week we, we talked about from Romans 1 to Romans 3.23 that man's fundamental problem is that he rejects God, suppresses the truth, and exchanges the glory of God to worship idols. That's man's fundamental problem. We reject God, we worship anything else but God. Today we're going to look at the fundamental solution to that problem. Namely, that God justifies sinners by faith. Now last week, I, I want to set the record straight, last week I said, uh, when I said God justifies sinners, I said that's all he does. And, and what I mean by that, and I followed it with a statement that he doesn't receive those that are self-righteous, that's what I was con contrasting it to, but I want to make clear, God redeems sinners by faith and he judges those that reject him. I don't want to paint the picture that, that it's all love and no judgment. I just want to set the record straight on that. I think that if anyone listened to the whole sermon last week or this week, they would come away with that. But when you make the, we live in a soundbite generation, and technically someone could clip that little piece out and say, all God does is justify sinners. All right. So this week we're looking at how God justifies sinners by faith alone. Before we go through that, I want to make sure that we understand what the term justification means. So you've got a bulletin. Hopefully you've got a bulletin. I'd encourage you to write some of these things down because it's important for us to understand what we're talking about. Words matter. They mean things. And so when we talk about a doctrinal term, I want to make sure that you're tracking what, what I'm tracking, that we understand what it means. Justification is a legal declaration. When a judge makes a legal declaration, it's a pardon for iniquity. Now, some people say justification, just as if I never sinned. Okay, maybe. But I did sin. And I was declared not guilty in spite of my sin. It's a legal def uh, declaration, a pardon for iniquity, a forgiveness for wrongs that I actually committed. Here's a few things. So there's three doctrinal terms here that I want to cover. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Three parts of salvation. Justification happens in one moment of time. I was saved when I was born again. I was saved, what? From the penalty of sin. In other words, declared not guilty. The penalty for sin is death. And I was saved from that the moment that I was born again. The moment I believed in Jesus and put my faith in Him, I was saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, what we'll talk about next week. I am being saved from the power of sin for the rest of my life. Sanctification is ongoing. I already have been declared not guilty. I've already been declared righteous 
by the blood of Jesus, and for the rest of my life, the Holy Spirit, whom God left with us, is making me righteous indeed. Make sense? For the rest of my life, I will be saved from the power of sin progressively, where there's growth, there's change. And then finally, glorification. I will be saved from the presence of sin when I meet Jesus face to face. At some point, it's going to be a glorious day. I'll be a new creation. I'll have a glorified body. I'll be with Jesus. My faith will be sight. I will be as he is because I will see him as he is, Paul says. And I will be set free and saved from the presence of sin forever. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Make sure that you're tracking with those as we go through this. Those are very important. Now, a quick admin note before we jump into our text this morning. Notice at the bottom of your bulletin, it says next week we're going to Romans 9 through 11 and looking at the sovereignty of God. We've made a change. We were able to work it out so that we stay in order. Next week, we're going through Romans 6 through 8, and we're looking at the sanctification of the saved. So you might make a note of that. And while you're there, you'll notice, church, we met our goal. That's right. We met our goal of of raising up the 309,000. We actually raised $310,000 over the last three and a half years to pay off that balloon payment in September of 2023. I'll show you the, uh, the slide that we initially posted in March of 2019, three and a half years ago. We started out with $860,000 in debt to pay off this big, massive, wonderful addition that they built years ago. Three and a half years ago, in March of 2019, we owed $860,000. And at that time, we, uh, the elders, were discussing ministry finances and, in, in fact, ministry in light of where we would be in September of next year when it comes time to refinance a $309,000 loan. And it was like, well, we can't do this because the bank wants to see this over the next several years. And I was like, this is nuts. Let's just pay it off. So we came to you and we said, four and a half years, let's raise $309,000 so that in September of next year, rather than refinancing, we write a big fat check to the bank and say, see you later. Thank you for the loan, but we're done. Now, some people are asking, yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Now, it's a little bit anticlimactic because I wish that I had the mortgage and I had a lighter and I was burning it right here. The reality is that you exceeded the goal by 15 months. So we still have 15 payments to make to pay down the rest of the board. So here's where we are. Uh, We still owe 462. We've raised 310 to pay off the the balloon, which means we have a scheduled 15 payments, $150,000, that will pay over the next, well, until September of 2023. All right? So praise the Lord. We're this close We're this close. Amen? Amen. All right. Good deal. Thank you, church. Thank you. Amen. I I, I do want to acknowledge that we launched that in May of 2019. 
And we had a, a great initial traction, and then COVID hit in March of 2020, and it was, all bets are off. And are we going to meet this goal? Are we going to survive? Are we going to uh, survive financially? Will we ever open the doors again? Right? There was a lot of questions. In two years, we endured COVID, and here we are. Not only, are we, not only are we, have we survived, we've thrived, we've grown, the Lord's blessed us, and now we have that $310,000 to take to the, to the bank next year and say, peace out, homie. We're done. Carla, that's exactly what I want you to say. Peace out, homie. All right. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good to us. You've blessed us. And Father, we just want to come and, and give you honor and praise and glory. Uh, this victory is yours. You're the one that gives us all good things. And I pray, Lord, that you bless the faithfulness of the stewards who have given sacrificially to your work, not only in paying off the debt, but in funding this church the ministry of this church that does amazing things in our community and around the world. I pray, Father, that you would continue to draw people into faithfulness with their finances, that they would, that they would know they're part of, of that glorious thing of, of we're doing your work. We have a mission. And I thank you, Lord, for blessing our church. And I pray that you would bless now as we study your word, thank you for giving us your word. I pray that you would be glorified as we respond to it, Lord, as we humble ourselves before you to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's pick up where we left off last week in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance <clears throat> He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." <clears throat> Another couple of important terms here. One, propitiation. Yeah, I think sometimes we, we shy away from doctrinal terms, but again, doctrinal terms matter. Propitiation. God sent forward as a propitiation by His blood. What, is it, what does propitiation mean? It, it means a removal of God's wrath upon the payment of a price. So God's wrath abides on sinners, and Jesus, by His sacrificial atonement, serves as a propitiation or a removal of God's wrath. Now, a lot of people don't like the, the term propitiation because it's connected to wrath. And the wrath of God is an icky and scary thing to think about. Because we want to create God in our own image, that all God is is love. God is love. God is also wrath. And whatever He is, He is perfectly that. 
So there's a propitiation, a removal of God's wrath based on the payment of a price, specifically Christ's sacrificial atonement on the cross. Now I want you to notice something here, okay? Because it's important that we get this right because some people, again, conceive that God has his wrath. He's ready to squash us like the bugs we are. And Jesus steps in and says, wait! Squash me instead. And God's like, fine. And begrudgingly accepts Christ's sacrifice. But what does it say? Whom God put forward as a propitiation. What does that mean? It means this was God's idea. This was God's plan. Not only is God gracious to accept on your behalf, in my behalf, Jesus' sacrifice, He was gracious enough to initiate it in the first place. Does that, does that resonate in your hearts? Man had a problem. We reject him. And rather than God saying, you figure it out, God initiates our redemption by putting Jesus Christ forward to serve as our propitiation. He is not a begrudging <laughs> giver of grace. I'm sure that you can think of someone that is stingy, <laughs> and you've had to go to them, and you've had to ask them for something. And it's like you're, you're, it's like you're, you're prying their fingers. They're like, yeah, I'll give it to you, but you've got to pry their fingers off of it. And then they have an attitude of, shouldn't have given it to you in the first place. Many people think that's, that, that that's how God is, and he's not. He is a generous merciful God. He, he blesses us richly with love and forgiveness. It was God's idea to send Jesus, to put him forward as a propitiation. Now, there is a problem. The wages of sin is death. God is holy. Sin must be dealt with. God cannot simply Say, I'll just sweep these under the rug and turn a blind eye. Because what, what is a judge who turns a blind eye? A wicked judge. An evil judge. A failed judge. Right? However, because of Jesus, because of the propitiation, God is able to be both just, the just holy, righteous judge as well as the justifier of those who believe. He is both able to withhold His holy standard. He doesn't violate His law in order to forgive you for violating it. Redemption satisfies both the just requirement that something must die for sin as well as justifies the sinner who places faith in Christ. Romans 3, 28-30. Kelly, could you hand me my water? 
Romans 3, 28-30, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Jews, as well as Gentiles, had heard the gospel and are worshiping together. That's a big part of the theme of Romans. As we especially get into fellowship in the final chapters of Romans, we sort of understand the problem was that Jews and Gentiles were having a hard time getting along. I think we can probably relate to, to the trouble that we have getting along with people who come from different cultures than us. But because faith is apart from the law, and since no one is saved by the law, we hold that God is able to save both Jew and Gentile. Now, who's a Gentile? A non-Jew. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. That's just how it is. So God is able to save those who are circumcised why? Because of their faith. And he's able to save those who are not circumcised also by their faith. Why? Because salvation does not depend upon an outer marking, but an inner condition of faith. Now Paul's going to go all the way back to Abraham. Abraham is hugely significant. He's the father of the Jews. Circumcision came to the Jews by way of Abraham. He was the first one to be circumcised. So Paul's going to go all the way back to the foundation to establish that faith and, or that righteousness and right standing with God, right relationship with God, came even before circumcision. It says in Romans 4, 3-5, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it, pause, what, what was it? His faith, his belief, was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If Abraham had worked his way into right standing with God, then it wouldn't be a gift. It would have been his wage. I had the privilege of illustrating this to my children this week. My daughter Addison collected her very first paycheck, got it in the mail. We intercepted it. I didn't, I didn't take the dad tax yet. We intercepted it. And so here's this envelope, and I know exactly what it is, and it's unopened, and we get in the van, and I say, Addison, I have a gift for you. And I hand her her check that she's worked out in the sun for hours. And I say, Addison, here's a gift. And I emphasize gift over and over again. And, and she's not sure exactly where it's going. Like, you get, like the gift of being able to, to get there or the gas to, you know, the, the, the transportation. She wasn't sure where I was going. But I kept saying, here's a gift for you. And, of course, we were all in the van, and I was like, all right, so, so is that really a gift? 
And, of course, she and the other kids said, no, it's not a gift. Why is it not a gift? Because I earned that. That's right. It was not a gift. That was her wage. That's what she earned. And Paul makes the case that if, if you earn your righteousness, if you earn right standing with God, it's not a gift. It's your due. The problem is that none of us will ever earn righteousness. So all we ever get is a gift of righteousness. Never the wage of righteousness. What does the Bible say? What does Scripture say? The wages of sin is death. The only thing, brother and sister, that you and I have earned is death. Verse 5, And to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So in other words, when the sinner, or as Paul calls the ungodly, recognizes, I will never be good enough to earn right standing with God, but Jesus offers me by grace His righteousness, and I put my faith fully and firmly on His righteousness, then by faith, I am counted righteous. What is this? I earn death. All I can do is sin. And when I come to recognize that fact, and when my hope goes from, I've been a, better, I've been a pretty good person, and I've done more good than bad, and there are worse people than me, and if... If there is a God, I, I think I'll be okay. When I go from that to saying, I know that I have earned God's wrath, that He is right to be my judge, but Jesus stepped into my place, Jesus forgive me and give me your righteousness, then it is counted to me as righteousness. Folks, that's how it works. It's how it's always worked, and it's the only way that it works. Continuing in verse 9, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision for Abraham was symbolic. Circumcision was symbolic of righteousness that he had already been given by faith when he believed God. Continuing in verse 11, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now notice that Paul appeals first to Gentiles, those who believe without being circumcised. He appeals first, 
Father Abraham would be the father to Gentiles. Folks, this is controversial and scandalous. Because Abraham is the father of the Jews. And Paul goes, the purpose of the circumcision was to make him the father, the father of those who would believe without being circumcised, i.e. the Gentiles, as well as those who were circumcised, the Jews, but not just any Jews, not just any person who was born a Jew and received the mark in the flesh, but those who walked in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a seal. It didn't make anyone righteous ever. The faith of Abraham is what was transferred through the generations of believers. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Let's stop there. It's not that Abraham would just be a blessing to the nation of Israel. We go all the way back to Genesis twenty-two eighteen. 18. The, the, the first promise here, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And it was through his offspring, Jesus, that that was achieved. Verse 18, In hope he believed against hope, so that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So in James 2.21, you know, we, we, some people, I think foolishly, pit James against Paul. James says, faith without works is dead. Paul says no one is justified by works of the law. All right, Talking about two different things. But here, Paul is, is, is appealing to the same thing that James was, or at least, at least in concept. James in chapter 2 appeals to Abraham's faith demonstrated by offering up his son Isaac. What did, what, what did James have to believe in order for him to offer up his son Isaac. The same thing that he believed that Paul refers to in verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So Paul refers to Abraham's belief that God was able to take this 100-year-old man and 90-year-old woman and give them a child. She had been barren all her life, and he believed that God was able to do and now once they have that child, James then appeals to the sacrifice. Years after Isaac is born, Abraham takes him to the altar, ties him on the altar, raises the knife, and God says, stop. In both of those situations, Abraham demonstrated his faith 
proved his faith. That is why his faith was counted to him, verse 22, as righteousness. He was fully convinced. Brother and sister, fully convinced is not lip service. Right? James in chapter 2 says, if a man claims to have faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And the way he asks that question begs the answer, no. We're not talking about lip service. We're not talking about just say words. We're talking about believe something, being fully convinced. That's why the mark of a Christian is always repentance. Because the first thing that a born-again Christian believes and is fully convinced of is their own sinfulness, their own depravity. Paul's not describing here easy believism and cheap grace. He's not, he's not saying if you just say these words, or in modern language, pray this prayer, then you're good. No, he's talking about genuine faith, fully convinced. Abraham's faith is an example. Who are those that walk in Abraham's footsteps? Those that believe, walk in his faith. Right? That put, put their, their money where their mouth is. They walk the walk, don't just talk the talk. It will be counted for us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Let me read that again. It will be counted to us who believe. What is it? Righteousness. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in Him, who are fully convinced that God is able to do what He promised, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What is the substance of our faith? When someone asks you, what's the gospel? They're asking, what do you believe? What are the basic tenets? I know a lot of people in their interviews for membership, they tense up because what they imagine when, when someone asks what is the gospel, that you have to do this sermon. No, just what's the, what are the tenets of the gospel? Number one, Jesus really died. That's what Paul says, that God raised Jesus from the dead. If God raised him from the dead, Jesus really died. Point one, Jesus is our Lord, Paul says. We come to Jesus as Savior and Lord, or we don't come at all. I reject the idea that someone believes the gospel, finds forgiveness, and then decades later finally submits themselves to the Lord. No, when you, when, when you are born again, two things happen. You, you're convinced of your sinfulness and His holiness, His highness, He is Lord. So Jesus is Lord. We submit to Him. He was delivered up for our trespasses, which means that without His death, we pay for our own sin. So Jesus really died. Jesus is Lord. And without His death, 
you and I would pay for our own sin. And finally, God accepted his sacrifice. He demonstrated that by raising him for our justification. God accepted Jesus' atoning sacrifice. How do we know that this man Jesus who went to the cross claiming, follow me, I'll give you life. How do we know that God is like, yeah, I'll accept that? Because God raised him for our justification. That is God's stamp of approval. And then, as, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.10, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus' substitutionary atonement on the cross was fully and finally acceptable by God. Why? Because it was God's idea in the first place. This is how God designed it to work. So that's the gospel. Jesus really died. Jesus is Lord. Without his death, you and I will pay for our own sin. And God accepted his atonement by raising him from the dead and seating him in heaven. You say something like that, we're like, you understand. You understand the gospel. You believe, if you're fully convinced, right? Because once again, I know that you can say those words without being fully convinced of them. What does it look like to, be, to, to say those words but not to be fully convinced? It, it looks like, okay, I, I say those things. However, when I sin, I feel like I still have to make myself right with God. I, I've got to do so many things to be right with God. Or just in case I don't know that I've sinned, I'm going to have to do all these righteous and religious things just in case I have fallen out of grace. Brother and sister, be fully convinced that in Jesus Christ you are counted righteous, you are justified, meaning you are declared righteous by the only judge that matters. Amen? Verse 3. Excuse me. Verse 1. Boy, I need to... I am way behind. Let me back up here. I want to make sure that no one misses this. I think this is important. It says, it will be counted to us who believe. What does that mean? It will be counted to us who believe. Verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe. What does that imply? It implies it will not be counted for those who do not believe. This is exclusive. The gospel is exclusive. It demands a sense of urgency and expectancy. There are people in the church who are functional universalists. They say, I believe the gospel. But what they believe is that this is right for, for me, for my family. It's kind of how I was raised. It's what fits my schedule. It's what, fit, it's what makes me feel good. But I don't think that everyone has to believe this in order to be made right with God. I think ultimately everyone... Here's a soundbite. I want to make sure that no one can cut this out as a soundbite. What they are saying is they believe 
that ultimately everyone gets to the good place. Now look, if you and I made up a religious system, I'd say you are right. It's wrong for us to impose our religious system on other people. And the reality is that we cannot and therefore should not try to coerce people to believe the gospel. You cannot coerce someone to believe the gospel. But you can and should, in love and compassion, sincerely invite them to receive by faith the offer of grace because while you don't stand as their judge, God does. God does. It is right for us to offer as broadly as we possibly can and as sincerely as we possibly can the invitation to escape God's judgment by faith in His Son. Romans 5, 1-5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Grace, peace, and glory of God. That's the vocabulary of the redeemed. And Paul says that you have access to these things that once were deprived from you because you are in Christ, because you've been made righteous. It's like an all-access pass. Any of you ever had an all-access pass? What do you get when you get an all-access pass? All-access, right? Who goes to a concert? with an all-access pass and says, I'll be happy to sit in the nosebleeds when I could go backstage and talk to my favorite artist. Brother and sister, you have access to the peace of God, the grace of God, the glory of God. The glory of God is your hope. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Verse 3, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Why does justification matter? Why does it matter how you were saved? That is your hope in suffering. It gives you reason to stand and endure, knowing that you have been made right by God. So no matter what anyone says about you, you know who you are. No matter what the enemy tries to tell you, you know who you are. You have been made righteous in Christ. God's love is given to us by the Spirit. It is poured. <laughs> you see, not sprinkled. Not, not a little dash like salt. Not, not just a little bit. It is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
The Holy Spirit constantly infuses us with his love. Later in Romans, we're going to read that, that he reminds us that we have been adopted into his family and we cry out, Abba, Father. He's a reminder. I belong to the Lord. He's not my judge. He's my Father. And he loves me. Verse 6 and 8, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love is at the center of the gospel. God's love is poured out for us, not when we decide, all right, God, I'm ready to be on your team now. I'm ready to stop rejecting you now. And, and then God begrudgingly gives us his love and makes us his children. No, while we were still weak, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is all the evidence that you and I need to know that God loves us. Verses 18 through 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brother and sister, what is on the other side of this life? Eternal, everlasting, unending life with our Father in heaven. That, that is what awaits us after we take our last breath, what awaits unending life for those who put their faith in Christ. An unending torment and suffering and separation from those who say, God, I don't accept you. And even if you are real, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand on my own goodness. I'll take, I'll take my own licks. Like you get what you want. I don't want you, God. I want to worship myself. And when all is said and done, I'll, I'll take my chances. Okay. Four things for us to keep in mind as we work verse by verse through Romans. Four things. To the not yet believers, I encourage you, I exhort you, justification by faith is a limited time and exclusive offer. To the not yet believers, justification by faith is exclusive and limited time offer. In the words of Mark Cahill, the author, you are one heartbeat away from eternity. Every time you turn on the news, 
What do you read? Or what do you see? What do you, what do you hear? Shooting in the subway, five dead. Shooting in the school, five, 10, 15, 20 dead. Stabbing at the grocery store, two dead. Another local farmer falls into his grain bin, dies. I know I risk sounding morbid, but does this not concern you to the not yet believer? Every single day, people die. About 150,000 people around the world die every year. That is one every half second. Does that not concern you? Do you play games with God? God is patient. Paul tells us God passed over former sins. What he means by that is God bore with us when he could have squashed us a long time ago. He waits until he doesn't. It's an exclusive and limited time offer. There's never a better time to repent of your sin, believe the gospel, submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, ask for his righteousness, and live for him than right this moment. What keeps you from what keeps you from receiving this gift of God's grace? One of two things. Both come a place of pride. I don't need it or I'm not good enough. Let's address the I don't need it. You're deceived. You are a sinner who deserves God's just wrath. Because you reject him, you suppress the truth, and you worship anything and everything but him. You need it. Now the lie of the second part, that you're not good enough, that's the point. That's the point. None of us is ever good enough. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is stopping you from repenting today, right now? How do you do that? Lord, I come a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe the gospel. I believe that Jesus died for my sin. I believe that he is the only way that I will stand before you righteous. Now, Lord, forgive me of my sin and give me the righteousness of Jesus by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Now tell somebody that you did that. Don't walk out the doors without telling me or another elder or pastor or somebody so that we can help you walk in this new life of faith. What is stopping you from doing it now? To the Christians... 
Not only is this a limited time off, uh, a limited time offer, it's also a limited time opportunity. The same author, Mark Cahill, says that we only have so much time to share the gospel with other people. He says, the one thing that you will never, ever do again when you enter into heaven is lead someone to Christ. When you breathe your last, you will lose your opportunity to join with the Lord in bringing someone to salvation. You have 80, maybe 90 years to invest in eternity. Eternity never ends. And the Lord gives you a lifetime to invest there. And your experience of eternity in terms of reward and responsibilities and relationships, that those hinge upon how you invest your time, treasure, and your talents in this life. Let me ask you, does the fact that this is a limited opportunity concern you at all? That when you stand face to face with Jesus, you will never, ever, ever tell someone else of the hope that they can have in a relationship with your Savior. To what extent does it excite you that you ought to, or that you're given that opportunity? If this reality does not concern you or excite you, I invite you to repent and ask the Lord to give you fresh eyes to see that the harvest is ripe and the workers are few. Amen? Final two things here. You, brother and sister, have access to the peace of God, the grace of God, and the glory of God. You have access to that. You have an all-access pass to the throne room of God. Let me ask you a question. Are you still fighting your battles in your own strength? Why? Are you still weathering your storms in your own willpower? Why? Why are you not going into the throne room before God? saying, give me mercy, give me strength, give me grace, help me endure, help me hope. Perhaps for some, because we don't want to deal with sin. And we know that if we enter into the throne room and say, God, I'm having so much trouble with, with all my friends or my, my, my family members, and God's going to be like, but they have trouble with you. Let's deal with you first. Maybe that keeps us out of the throne room. How foolish is that? Deal with your sin. Go to the throne room. Ask the Lord to give you His grace. Give you His peace. Stop fighting in your own strength. You have an all-access pass. And finally, I want to leave you with the awesome reality that the God who made the heavens and the earth loves you. He loves you, church. He loves you. That's what it was all about. 
Why did he send Jesus? Because he loves you. Why did he put him forward as a propitiation to remove his wrath? Because he loves you. Why did he raise him from the dead? Because he loves you. You who once rejected him. You who still fail to get it right. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. You need no other sign of God's love than to look at the nail-scarred hands and the sword-pierced side and the thorn-crowned head of Jesus than to know just how far God would go to prove, to demonstrate, to show that he loves you. Blessings to you, church. Amen. Father, we love you because you first loved us. I pray that that would weigh heavy on us today. And at the same time, it weighs heavy. It would make us light knowing that we are loved by our Creator God. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in us. I pray for a new birth today. I pray there is someone who even today, right now, repents of their sin and by faith is justified and counted righteous before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.